Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. This is it. The time has come. Saturday night's all right for fighting. The push him down. Get in the ring and go the distance with Fight Night with Adam Catterall and Gareth A. Davies. You're better than that. On Talk Sport. Welcome to the Fight Night Podcast from TalkSport. I'm Adam Catterall. As ever, it's a pleasure to be in your company. But if it is the first time that you've ever come across us, uh, please subscribe. Hit the iTunes subscribe button and write us a, a five-star review as well. It helps us with our visibility in the iTunes charts. So therefore, more people can come and enjoy uh, what we do on a week-by-week basis here at TalkSport. Um, coming up on the podcast, we are going to talk quite a lot about MMA because UFC 249 is no longer going ahead on April the 18th. Uh, we spoke to ESPN reporter Ariel Hawani on the show, and we also had Jorge Masvidal, the BMF himself, come to join us. Uh, we caught up with Frank Warren, um, because at the weekend it was supposed to be, obviously, Joyce versus Dubois. Louis Ritson came to talk to us as well, as well as a fantastic young man uh, called Macaulay McGowan, who's raising some uh, awareness and some money uh, during this lockdown. But we'll get to them uh, in a moment or two. We're going to start by bringing you... For many, the best British boxer of all time. He finished his career undefeated. He held two ring magazine belts at two different weights. He is, of course, the class act that is Joe Calzaghe. We are going to obviously talk about you and uh, everything that you achieved in the world of boxing and, of course, uh, where you're at right at this moment in time. So thank you very much for your time. Uh, this Saturday night. We've just had um, Frank Warren on the show and he kind of was having a little bit of a reminisce of some of those fantastic nights in the, uh, in the mid to late 90s. Uh, and he brought up, obviously, the world title fight against Chris Eubank, which you, which you took on really late notice because it was obviously supposed to be Steve Collins that night. A few things happened, went back and forth. Eubank came in last minute and it was you and him for the WBO World Championship. Yeah, that's right. I remember that. And uh, like you said, Steve Collins was the original opponent. I think Steve pulled out about 10 days before and uh, Chris Eubank was boxing on the card anyway. I think against a fight called Mark Prince. So he was in shape. He was out the ring for a long time. And I remember when Steve pulled out that Chris Eubank was the opponent. Obviously, I was a bit weary uh, as regards to because I was being a Eubank fan. And, and I watched <laughs> him come through and knowing, knowing he's a tough, 
tough guy to fight, you know. So, uh, probably the worst thing I did when I boxed him, I, I dropped him in the first 15 yeah. seconds. And bear in mind, I've never been 12 rounds before in my life. So, dropping him in the first 15 seconds and then, uh, like, throwing everything at him. And three and four, five rounds go, then I think about seven or eight rounds went by. And I was, I was pretty exhausted, you know. And I've never done 12 rounds in a, in a major fight in the U-Bank with his experience. And he was strong. And, you know, he did what he said at the press conference. He said he's going to take me to the, to the well. And I, I thank him for that. It was uh, probably the hardest fight I've ever had um, in my life. I'm not saying, you know, it was tough. It was a tough night, but it was a good baptism into, into World Championship Boxing. And that, that experience of that fight, that 12 rounds, put me in good stead for the rest of my career, you know? Yeah, I was going yeah, to ask you that, whether that was the moment, just psychologically and for confidence as well, that it just just ticked an extra box. You knew that you could knock dudes out because you'd done that up until this point. You had a wonderful amateur career as well. But it was when you're fighting someone against the Eubank who is made out of absolute granite and you can go to the well against him and win a world title against him. Is that, does that just tick the last, the last box for you to confirm where you're at in your head as an elite level boxer? Yeah, of course. You know, it was my first major test. You know, I was British champion. Um, I was waiting a long time for the world title fight and they had to fight Eubank. You know, it was uh, you know, a, a great experience, you know. Joe, I want to say it wasn't it wasn't announced at the top of the package. Good evening, by the way, and I hope you're well. Yeah, I got um, it. Hi. Um, listen, as you know, I covered your entire career. I was with you the whole time. That um, you went forty six and zero and retired. Okay, I mean it's an extraordinary achievement. Eleven more years you went after that Chris Eubank fight. How much pressure was there on you mentally in the end that? That, that kind of undefeated record was there. How much did that work on you all the time? Because I remember all those years ago, it, it was an issue at the time as well. It was. Um, it was an issue, mate. Um, yeah, I'll be honest with you. It's, uh, when you win the world title, you want to defend it. And to be honest, at first, I wanted unification fights. And yeah, boxing is business. As you know, it's not that easy just to fight the other champions. You know, I was probably too dangerous for me over it at the time. Like everything, you have to build your name up, be a name. And then you get the big fights. Unfortunately, it took a long time before I got the unification fights. I think it was 17 world title fights before I got my yeah. chance of fighting Jeff, Jeff Lacey, who at the time was an uh, Olympic medalist. He was supposed to be the next Mike Tyson, similar version of And You know what? Everybody expected me to lose that fight. And I think that was the fight that, that sort of put me onto a next level where finally and then this uh, unification fight against a younger fighter. And to be honest, Garth, guys, it was like to go into a fight where you're the underdog for the first time in your career and you, you're like, I broke my hand a fight before. Uh, I fought with one hand for eight rounds against a fight called Evans Ashira. So I was injured for a while. So going into that fight and, you know, um, said you're going to lose by the boxing news, you know, a lot of the tabloids. So, yeah, it's, it's a different sort of mm. dynamic going into a fight where for once, you know, you, you said you're ready to go. People say you're going to get knocked out, and yeah, it's, it is difficult, you know, to uh, to adapt and adjust with that mindset. But that shows a true champion when your back's against the wall. I think you know that's when people come out when you've got them big fights, them tests, and you come out and win. You know, and uh, that's what's all we, about in boxing is winning. Well, when we absolutely when we announced tonight you were coming on the show, there've been so many questions for you, by the way, and thank you for putting out the thank coming you. on as well. Um, for the younger listeners tonight, right? It's twelve okay. years old, next Sunday since <laughs> it's twelve years since you fought Bernard Hopkins next Sunday, right? A, a very memorable night. Obviously, a few months before you fought Roy Jones Jr. And those two 
wins capped what was an extraordinary career. Because for younger listeners, Joe, you won two Ring Magazine belts. No one else has done that. I mean, when you look back on that career now, um, and, and you're not someone that comes out, we don't hear from you a lot. You're not someone that needs acclaim. You're not on social media all the time looking for attention. When yeah. you see things going on in the last week, and there have been a lot of questions about this, Carl Frotch coming and piping up that he'd have done this, that, and the other to you, uh, and now he wants to fight you again. What do you, He now wants to fight you again. What do you make of it? Wow, well, it's mad. I'm still living in his head, you know what I mean? It's uh, all these years. It's, uh, hey, it's, what can I say? I've done everything I need to achieve in boxing, you know what I mean? Um, I think most of you know, know what have happened. And, uh, I know what, what would have happened. I've not really read stuff, um, to be honest. I don't really take much notice of what, especially what he says. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> mate, you know what I mean? I don't know what you answer that one. I'm like 48, man. I've even tied 10 years. Like, you know, um, listen, I'm happy with my career, like you said, mate. It's, um, box catch. But what would you have done to him? But what would you have done to him? Just talk us through the fight if it had happened, if you well, hadn't gone on like, to fight no, those two greats. Yeah. What would have happened in 2007? Yeah, it's different. At the end of the day, like I said, you know, those are my peaks. So, obviously, I won the fight too fast, too sharp. But, you know, we said this before, at the end of the day, I couldn't go to be any super middleweight, you know? Um, the only super middleweight I'd have to say probably is Roy Jones at his peak, you know? He was like super, he was like Superman, you know? So, um, Except for that, you know, I think, you know, unifying the title for 10 years, um, winning all the belts, which, like, you know, all four major titles and the ring magazine. And I'll be honest with you, Gareth, like, after that, after the, the, the fight with, um, with, with Mikko Kessler, I knew that was the end because at the time I remember speaking to Dad and saying, now, I wanted to go to America. I wanted to fight Bernard Hopkins, who was the ring magazine champion. Champion, I think he was, like, ranked number two, number three in the world, mm-hmm. pound for pound, for pound but... To leave a, it's all about legacy. To, to, to me, you know, winning all the belts is super weight. What mattered? It's not somebody just piping up and talking. There's a lot of contenders, a lot of challenges. Everybody wants what you got. But to me, it was it was going to America, and and, um, and I did. I got my own ticket after the Kessler fight as, with uh, the Ricky Hatton and uh, the Mayweather fight, and I yeah. went there. Got my own ticket in the cheap seats, and uh, yeah, just uh, went there. I uh, bumped into Hopkins in the press room, and the fight was made. And <laughs> I know. You look at it, that was, I think it was a YouTube clip when he made that statement of never losing to, to a white guy. And I was like happy, and I thought, yeah, definitely. And that was without social media back in the days, and that was a yeah. big, big fight. So mm. when it comes to the social media part you're talking about earlier, I'm not really into the social media part. I'm, I'm pretty old school. So, you know, saying I do this and do that and words don't mean nothing, you know, when it comes to actions. So I've always been. Old school fighter does a, does a business, mate, you know? Joe, has there, has there ever been a moment, since you called time on that fantastic career, has there ever been a moment where you fancied fighting again? How, how easy has it been for you to deal with not being a fighter anymore? Do you know what? I started boxing as an eight-year-old. I won my uh, first fight as a 10-year-old. I won my first ABS as, as a 12-year-old at 36 kilograms in 1985. So 2009, my last fight, 2008, November. I think yeah. it's a long time and... Uh, it's an incredible time, you know, fantastic experiences and so on, but it's about knowing when is the right time to quit in boxing. I think I was 37 when I retired, and I achieved what I wanted to achieve in boxing, which I felt was it was everything, and I fought for legacy. And as you touched on earlier on, uh, Gareth, yeah, it was important at the end to retire in defeat because when you're a world champion 10 years, you think, okay, I'm coming to the end of, the end of my career now, so 
I want to make sure I fight the main fight at the end of my career. So the fight in my home stadium um, was was incredible, you know, uh, to fight Kessler. And yeah. I said, my father said, this is it now, because we can spar, we can train, um, we struggled, obviously injury problems, so on, you know, it's a lot of wear and tear in the body and not just that, you know, to get up in the morning and, and keep fighting and keep fighting. And my dad, over my lens, my dad, bless him, man, he always instilled in me as a child, you know, it's um, train like a challenger. Always train like a challenger. And that was instilled in me from a, from a very young age. So you can't like yourself in boxing. So when it comes to a time when that runs a bit harder and you're aching and, you know, you've got to evaluate what the reason the boxing is. And to me, like I said, you know, thank God. I had a great time. Uh, great time also made with my father, blessed to have my father Enzo in my corner. Without him, I never achieved what I achieved, you know. Um, yeah, it was, it was incredible. It was a long... Going back over my career, a long, long time. So, sorry, guys. Listen, we're going to continue celebrating uh, that career and obviously a fantastic relationship with uh, uh, your father, both in and out of the ring. We'll do that in a moment. Do stick with us uh, here on TalkSport. Joe Calzaghe joining us this evening on Fight Night. From Newbridge, Wales, take you back if I may to, to 2014 when you were inducted into uh, the Hall of Fame I remember seeing the pictures uh, that night alongside Oscar De La Hoya and Felix Trinidad sensational night for yourself and a very proud night for your dad he looked absolutely over the moon uh, that particular evening when uh, your name was read out yeah it was a fantastic um, fantastic occasion you know I think every fight likes to be inducted into the International Boxing Hall of Fame and uh, to, be, to go into this ballot the same time as Oscar De La Hoya and uh, Felix Trinidad, you know, it's uh, two two tremendous tremendous fighters. Obviously, very humbling for myself, and you know, I think it's uh, it's a beautiful occasion. Obviously, to share it with my father as well, you know, family. Well, I, w- I was going to say that because not many people get the opportunity to share personal glories uh, with someone so dear to them as their own father, and I'm sure it was exactly the same for him as well sharing those moments with, with you. Talk, talk us about that, because for, for a lot of people that don't know too much about you and your dad's story, he obviously took it upon himself to learn 
train becoming a boxing trainer and and train a young boy from uh, from the south of Wales to become one of the greatest fighters of all time. It's it really is sensational. Yeah, it's it's crazy. But my my dad could box. A lot of people say that he obviously I knew he was a musician, but uh, my grandfather boxed um, when he was young and taught my father the box. Obviously, an amateur. But um, back in the days in Sardinia, he had a football, a pair of boxing gloves, and. So he's a, I think he's more talented uh, footballer than he was a boxer, but my dad could box, definitely box a bit. Um, and um, yeah, you know, uh, when he took me to the boxing gym as, as a nine-year-old, the trainer at the time was, uh, um, the trainer was called Paul Williams. So he took me to the boxing gym and um, basically my dad had taught me home and uh, Paul Williams, the trainer, couldn't believe this was my first time in the gym and I was nine years old at the time. So, you know, he took me to the gym. I used to do training like 11, 12 years old, my father trained me like, um, like a professional. So I come home from, <laughs> from school and he kicked my ass to, to go for a run. And it, whether it was rain, sleet or snow, at the time, I used to, I used to hate him at the time, but I know he knew that talent then. If it wasn't for pushing me, and I think everybody needs somebody when you're young as well as a teenager and you want to do other things. And yeah. it's tough, you know? So when you're fighting at that level as a teenager, you miss, a, miss out on a lot in life. Do you know what I mean? So... It's a highly dedicated sport at that time, you know. A lot of people don't know this as well, Joe, that um, obviously Enzo, um, who we loved very much, um, he was one of the great characters in boxing, was also a brilliant musician. He was a brilliant musician. And obviously, um, one of the great lines I always enjoyed writing about was how he'd been a warm-up artist for Bucks Fizz all those years ago. <laughs> and Banana. And, and he, but he was in that group of Banana Rama and Bucks Fizz and all those guys. Banana. Don't forget Paul Young. Recorded with Paul Young, remember him? Yes, Paul Young, exactly. Yeah, yeah, Paul Young, all of them. But but what what he did was what he did with you that was so unique was he adapted the notes of music so that those seven punch combinations came from rhythm and then it gave you in the end that incredibly unique style allied with your natural talent. Look, we have had more questions for you. By the way, we haven't mentioned this. You also, apart from the Ring Magazine belt, the Hall of Fame, you also won Sports Personality of the Year in 2007. Yes. Name me a few other boxers that have done that. There have only been a couple. Um, you know, people like Muhammad Ali, Henry Cooper, all these kind of classic names. We've had so many questions for you tonight. I've had this conversation with Andre Ward, and I've had it with you privately as well. Brad Aigo mm-hmm. Salazar, amongst several others, has asked tonight, Hi G, how does real Joe Calzaghi feel he would have gone about fighting Andre Ward, and how would the fight have gone? I became a big fo- boxing fan in my, my late 20s, and it was down to Joe's style, heart, and cojones, and those were your qualities. I'm um, now you. 40. <laughs> I still have Joe as the number one. How do you beat Andre Ward? How would it have played out? Yeah, it's a tough fight. You know, like I go back to styles make fights, you know, and I suppose people are like going backwards, KG. Yeah, I think it'd be a tricky fight. I'm, I'm not sure athletically that would be a very good fight to watch, but I think it could be technical. It'd be a tough one. Yeah, it's a tough one. Obviously, I'm saying I'm going to win. <laughs> like you say, you're going to win. But yeah, I think it'd be a... A pretty tough fight. They win the fight. I win the fight, but um, it could be a messy fight that one. Joe, Joe, I was reading some uh, stuff at the back end of last year that uh, you might have the appetite to maybe at some point get yourself uh, into coaching. Is that is that something that you're looking looking at, or uh, or, yeah, or away, a long way? Um, yeah, potentially down the line. You know, I, I definitely love boxing. Love the sport of boxing. It's going to be a, a tremendous life. Um, since my dad's passed away, I've been working on a project. Um, that, that is a bit about boxing and, and with children and so on. It's um, it's going to be 
a really good thing we've been working on the last 16 months. And, and yeah, you know soon about it. It's going to be really good. It's really good. It's like a um, legacy I do with my father. Awesome. Question, loads of questions for Carl Froch about Carl Froch, and we've already dealt with that. But there's, 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 there's a few questions here about... Um, and it's not always the boxer we think it is, but who hit hardest and who was your toughest opponent, do you think? Um, well, who hit hardest? Well, the first time I ever got dropped as a perfect, well, in my life, I like, you know, got dropped at gym, sparring uh, 120 amateur fights. And I think it was 2003 I boxed ex-WBA champion Byron Mitchell. And, Byron uh, Mitchell, was, yeah. That's the first time I got dropped. And um, I suppose I'm really proud of that fight because in boxing you can't prepare yourself until it happens, how are you going to react to getting dropped, you know? So I remember fighting to a fight, and I was first round, I was all over him, and the second round, he caught me a couple of body shots. I threw, I think I left, he caught me the short right off on the chin. It's a flash knockdown, which I got back up, and I, I stopped in the same round. And I'll be honest with you, you know, I think I was very proud of my proudest performances because you don't know, you don't know until he backs against the wall as a champion, when you're down, you're dropped, or things ain't going your way. And you oh, you, to- you tore into him when you got up, Joe. You you got up <laughs> like a man possessed. I remember it. Yeah, yeah, that yeah, was yeah. the moment. But that was the moment. We, yeah, <laughs> but, that, but that was the moment that we knew that you were going to have this style that you would not be beaten. You were quite a reluctant figure in terms of being in the media at that point and all those things. But when you got knocked down that day, you got up and you just went at him and you broke him and stopped him. I remember distinctly thinking, wow, when he's fighting, he's got the devil in him. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, he made me angry, man. Yeah, he dropped me <laughs> playing card in front of the crowd. So I had to take him out. But uh, yeah, that was, uh, that was a, a tricky night, that one. That was uh, one of them, you know up and down nights, exciting, early night jobs, and thank, thank God I managed to, to take him out in the round that he, uh, he dropped me. But, yeah, that's one of my proudest things because at the end of the day, you know, it's um, going back to the Eubank thing. Until you go, like he just said, the Eubank before, until you go into that well, that's what the champion's all about. And, you know, it, it just comes out if you get dropped. The way you come back also shows what champion's all about. You know, they're things that are instinctual. They're from, that's what's from your heart, you know, that's from the side. Mm. Do you know what I mean? No, absolutely. Um, I think you had touched upon this slightly earlier on. There's a few people asking, like, what is your greatest night? But I, I would assume that night against Kessler, I, I, I just keep thinking about the crowd that particular night. It was unbelievable, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I have to say, I peak Kessler as well. You know, Kessler yeah, was a very dangerous animal that night. And I think for four rounds, I, um, it, it was a struggle. I, I was too aggressive with him and I, I started to adapt and use my boxing skills and pulled away with the fight in the second half. But that was a very, very tough fight. And yeah, I think, you know, um, for two uh, Super Bowl ch- World Champions to, I think, our joint records, 90-something and old. And bear in mind, we had yeah. two belts. I had, I had two or three belts at a time, and it was a great fight. So we have to say that fight, obviously the Jeff Lacey fight, where yeah. that was a massive turning point in my career, where I was the underdog. And I think as far as performance goes, I, I was very happy with that performance that night. And obviously going to America, you know, going to America is one thing, but going there and winning... That's what matters. So going mm. and fighting Kessler, um, uh, sorry, I mean Hopkins, yeah. and finishing off and fighting Madison Square Garden and Mike Mecca Boxing. You know, I remember like where I came from, you know, and always being the underdog in Kansas State and uh, small town in Wales, you know, to go to fight mm. in Madison Square Garden was one of the greatest fights of all time and finish a career that I wanted to finish. Uh, thank God, you know, and uh, all the hard work and dedication over the years and belief that 
my time would come came, you know, and uh, I'm happy with that, you know, and I'm content. Good man. To echo those words, Joe, there's a lovely tweet towards you from Francis Ampofo tonight, the former boxer. Joe, um, we all Francis. know who... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Francis, lovely guy. Um, Little Francis, playweight. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, Joe, we all know who the best ever fighter from Britain is, and that's you. You have nothing to prove to anyone. Best regards, the pocket battleship. And this is an interesting one. Thank uh, from you, dripping, <laughs> uh, From Dripping Tap. Um, dripping Tap? I want... I, I, yeah, dripping tap. I, I know Ooh. what they're doing. So I'm repeating a bit. Of, not they're not doing any plumbing anyway. But um, I, I I wondered as someone who was bullied at school. I recall this about you. If you support any anti-bullying charities, also any advice from your own experience to those being bullied. Or as we all know, bullying isn't necessarily being being physical. In fact, verbal bullying and exclusion can be devastating to some kids. What's your advice to parents if their kids are being bullied? Yeah, answer your first question. Yeah, I've done a lot of charity for beat bullying over the years. I think the first, yeah, and especially on beat bullying, yeah, I did. And um, secondly, yeah, I think being bullied in school put me in good stead in my career. So when I fight a bully, like uh, Lacey or uh, say. Hawkins regarding, you know, mouth and off of bullying. It put me in good stead for that. So when it comes to fighting a bully, uh, I, I, it gives me extra motivation, to say the least. I tell Sorry, you, Joe, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of people here that would really like to see you fight Carl Frotch. <laughs> I, 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 I'm just say, going... I I, I, I'm like... going through... <laughs> I, I'm going through it, and I mean, He's a racket, to the man. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that's the love, mate. Oh. They want to see you fight again. That's all it is. It's just the love. The I know, and I adore. thank you, everybody. And I know still being missed means that you've done something pretty good. You know what I mean? Absolutely. So I'm happy. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, oh. Joe. It's been an absolute... thing if they say they want to see me fight again. I'll be worried. That's exactly that. Exactly <laughs> that. Yeah. <laughs> From world champions of the past to world champions of the present, I caught up with the IBF lightweight champion of the world, Tiafimo Lopez, this week as he looks ahead to unifying the vision against Vasyl Lomachenko. It's a frustrating time for everybody. It's a frustrating time for every fighter, of course. Is it more so frustrating for you because you were on the cusp of that big unification clash with Loma? I mean, we were being told that it was May the 30th, that that's when it was going to go down. No, yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. I mean, it's tough, you know, times like these, you know, it happens. And, and you know, um, it was real close to uh, pretty much we were, we were final, finalizing everything with the camp, you know, and then, you know, this whole COVID-19 happened. And, mm-hmm. um, and that just ruined everything, you know. Now we're at a point right now where we just have to sit and be on standby for everything, and that's for every yeah. fighter. You know, if you haven't made the type of money... See, a lot of people think us fighters make a lot of money. You know, starting... You know, I used to start with $4,000. I used to make 1000 around. Mm-hmm. You know? Now things have changed. You know, I'm making anywhere close to a million dollars. But things like that, it just... Because you have to find a way to get you there. But the thing is, like, you could have or close to it, but are you saving it? Are you, you know, investing in it? And that's the problem. You know, a lot of these young fighters right now, you know, like myself, even when I was getting like $4,000 a check, I was spending on Gucci and, and all the high brands. And next thing you know, I didn't have no money, you know. But then you learn from experience. You learn from within time. So now I'm able to take care of my, my family for the remainder of this year, you know, until yeah. next year. Then we see what happens. 
you know, but those things, are, you know, and, and I'm blessed to be able to do that. Not everybody can, you know, and, and that's the scary part about it. Because when people start losing, obviously, a lot of people have been unemployed. and But when people start losing all that financial and everything, mm-hmm. um, sometimes it could turn into a bad route, you know, go out there and go um, who knows what. So we just try to, uh, that's why, you know, the whole thing, stay home, stay, you know, stay home and stay away. And social distancing is very important because of those things. You know, you don't want any riots or anything to get chaotic. You know, I'm not saying in the UK. UK is probably not like that. You guys have everything. But I'm saying in the U.S., in the U.S., it could get real, real bad. You know, um. You I think he's same. I think he's yeah. I think he's same everywhere, man. People are losing their jobs, you know, and people are being told to stay indoors and various things like that. And therefore, like you said, there's civil unrest. People people want to get out, and when you feel trapped like that, you obviously react against it, you know. And as you've just been mentioning there, people can make bad decisions, and we just hope that this doesn't last too long. So therefore, those bad decisions are limited a little bit. Have you always had a old head on your shoulders? Because you're 22. You're not even. You're not 23 yet. But you've yeah. always seen every conversation I've had with you. You've always been, you've always spoken like you're way beyond your years. Has that always been the case for you? You've always been older in your head. Yeah, for the most part, I think you know, just reading books and stuff. But I stopped reading books, man. Freak. Uh, I don't know. I just started. I, I figured myself out. You know, I learned about. I got to know myself at the age of like sixteen, seventeen. Mm-hmm. Grew up kind of quick. You know. Um, well, yeah, my wife, she humbles me in a way, in the sense of just understanding things. You know, yeah, I don't have to be, a, I don't have to be, um, I guess, arrogant, like they will say, or anything like that. So I think, um, for the most part, I just, but I've always been like this. You know, my wife's yeah. five years older. She's five years older than me. And, uh, you know, obviously that, that worked out, you know, because she's yeah, yeah, mature yeah. and I'm mature, you know, no matter what age I am, you know, at the, in the sense of me being 22, her being 27. You know, so I just, I think I've always had that mentality, mm-hmm. you know, and as I get older, I'm just learning more and being more observant around the people that are around me, you know, businessmen and uh, men that I've made. I've interacted and talked to men that were businessmen of making millions of dollars, multiple, multiple million dollars, billion dollars. I mean, and the list goes on and on. You just learn from them. They teach you some things and then you got to you take it with you. The reason why I asked that, man, is because two minutes ago I asked you the question about the frustration of the fight and the unification of the lightweight division, but then you automatically started speaking about other people's struggles. Not a lot of guys do that, man. A lot of people would be, you know, it would be really affecting where they're at. No, that's what I'm, that's what I'm talking about, the maturity that you're, that you're showing at, at this stage because this is a big moment in your career. Yeah, but, you know, it goes back to it where it's like, you know, they asked me, they, I had, you know, obviously, Adam, I've had a few other interviews before you, and they've asked me. They've asked me, uh, would you fight if they had everything cleared? And would you fight Lomachenko without the audience, without fans? No, I wouldn't. You know why? Because I do it for the fans. You know, I yeah. enjoy it because of the fans. You know, when you have all the fight fans out there, you know, it makes it more exciting. It makes it a fight. It makes it an epic night. You know, it makes it a, a, a memorable light, a night. Of course. You know, and Was it done? Was May 30th done? The May 30th date, yeah, it was done. I was going to fight regardless. I mean, he said he was fighting May 30th. I said I was fighting May 30th. We were both yeah, yeah. agreed on that, May 30th. And, uh, but what about we were just waiting. Location, that was a problem. Okay. Uh, it was going back and forth. He wanted to do it in Vegas. I was like, we could do it in New York. I was like, I don't care, honestly. I was like, I don't give a shit. You know, if we do Vegas, state state taxes for me, they don't have any. I'm good. You know, um, <laughs> 
New York, I'm good either way. New York, I'm good either way because, you know, I have all the fans. I'm everything. You know, it's like New York. I love it. You know, you, you've seen it. You love New York. Yeah, I man. mean, I love New York. But then... um, I've seen your ring walks in New York as well, man. The old Frank Sinatra. That's got to come out again, hasn't it? New York, New York. <laughs> yeah, man. And we had a lot of... Man, it sucks, you know. It, it really does sucks. It sucks at times like these, but... You know, you try to make the best of it. And I think, um, you know, but at the same time, though, you got to think of it. Like, a, a lot of good has happened. Well, not, I shouldn't say a lot of good, but some good has happened, mm-hmm. you know, throughout this whole quarantine and stuff. You know, I mean, you get to interact with your family more. You're not really much in the social media. I mean, you get to have your little game nights. You get to have movie nights, you know. I think, uh, you know, because you have nothing else to do. You know, you try to keep an, stuff. Yeah, there's an appreciation of human beings, man. You appreciate things more that maybe you took for granted pre- previously. And I think I'm seeing a lot of that with my friends and family as well, you know? Yeah, and I think that kind of opens our eye because I guess we're all in this cycle where we just keep going and thinking that we're going to live another day or stuff, but you never know. So, mm-hmm. yeah, to appreciate it. But going back to boxing and everything, I know you, this is what it's all about. You know, the, the final, uh, we were we were close. I, I yeah, believe yeah. we were. We I think... Our side was done, though, honestly. I believe our side was done, and the only thing was we were waiting on them. And I think Top Rank was talking with ESPN to figure out the numbers for because they wanted to for it to be on pay-per-view. So I think that was the thing, and I think they were just taking a, a longer time. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I needed them to give me something because I was going into camp. That means I have to yeah. pay sparring partners. That means I have to pay this, and I have to pay this and pay that. And um, so I needed to know exactly what was going on. Is the fight going to happen? And are we set for May 30th? Yeah, yeah. Um, but, but then this happened, so that just, <laughs> that just threw it away. Yeah. Listen, I don't know if you've seen this week, but Devin Henney's been reinstated as the WBC lightweight champ. Yeah, obviously he was injured. That belt went vacant. We thought our boy Luke Campbell was going to fight for that. Then we got told, I think yesterday it was, that Henny's re- reinstated his belt. What do you make of it? They gave him his belt back? I believe so. You know, I commented on his ass for the first time in a long time. I, I don't, I, you know, there's a, a lot of these guys, right? They'll talk or whatever it is. All these fighters, blah, 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 blah. Or they talk to each other. I never get involved. I never get involved. But I had time the other day. <laughs> <laughs> We've got a bit of time on our hands, man. You've got to get involved. No, I have a lot of times. So I'm just like, hmm. <laughs> so he's like, you know, the kid is so the kid is so desperate. Devin Haney, I'm talking about. Yeah, uh, he saw it in his social on his Instagram, I think. I think he posted on both his socials, uh, Instagram and Twitter. I don't know, but he tagged me in it. And it was uh Torres Lomachenko. He wrote on an Instagram quote or whatever on his uh DM'd him. Okay. He said, I heard Lopez is pulling out in the fight. Let's make this fight happen. You and I will make millions. I go and I tell him, I wrote to him. He never wrote back. These these kids, they talk a lot of shit, but the moment I talk, they, they, they'll shut up. Um, I said something in the words, like, I can't think of it right off the bat, but I said something in the words of, you're pretty much your funniest shit. Like, you, you make me, like, you're, you, 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 you're crazy. Um, but it just goes to show, like, all that Reese's and champion, because he was a Reese's and champion, was he not? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. All that got to his head. I mean, but now I was like, like, you're desperate. And I told him, um, I told him, I was like, you're desperate, you know, uh, but don't worry about it. You'll get your shot. Just wait till the big boys finish their business. And I just like, 
I mean, for them to give him his belt back, go ahead. I mean, but it's just he ain't the real WBC world champion, though. So it's like I don't even care. Who'd you view it? Who'd you view it as? Lomachenko's the real WBC champion? Yeah, everybody knows that. Same thing with Canelo, you know? It's the same thing. I think it's just, uh, it's just you know, every organization, every sanction has their way of doing things. You know, what I like about the – one thing I like about the IBF is just that they have one champion. It's not no super champion, no nothing like that. It's just one champion. And it should be like that everywhere, but everyone has their thing. You know, because then, cause then you have, you know, um, oh, I'm world champion, but you're super world champion. So that makes you, uh, so you're like, huh? What, what's the difference between super and world and just regular? You know, I thought it was world champion, not super world champion, but they all have their things. Um, but I see, I do see myself fighting, facing Devin Haney, and I would like to. I would like to, but I see it any, somewhere in, at 140. Yeah. Cause I'm not gonna I'm not gonna stay to fight a fake champion. I'd rather go and move to 140. He comes to 140. He earns an actual belt and actually earns it, you know. And, and then we'll make the fight happen. Now at the weekend, Auto Arena. That was the location for Daniel Dubois versus Joe Joyce. Of course, that didn't go ahead because of the coronavirus pandemic. But Frank Warren joined us to talk about that fight when it can be made what's happening in the world of the promotional uh, aspects of this sport and when he expects us to be back up and running with fans in the arena. When you look at your calendar, I was looking at it a little earlier on and I saw obviously their names on my calendar for a fight to attend. It does fill you with a little bit of sadness. I know it's unprecedented times, but that fight was a fight that a lot of fans were so excited about. Oh, we all were, weren't we? You know, we worked very hard to get it on, and you've got to take your hat off to the two guys who, who stepped up to the plate. You know, so so uh, early in their professional career, they both wanted it, and uh, and we done really well. I mean, you know, uh, I think we only had about twelve hundred tickets, if that left before mm. we uh, postponed it. So it would have been a sellout, contrary to what was said on. Um, on Bunce's podcast that he was being curtained off for 7,000. I don't know where he got that rubbish from, but um, it was going extremely well. And uh, obviously we've rescheduled it uh, for the 11th of July. And we're all keeping our fingers crossed that um, we may be able to get it on at that. If not, we'll have to push it back. But I hope it's going to go on on that date. Who knows what's going to happen? Well, ex- exactly that, Frank. And we can't really guess because of obviously everything that's going on right now. We're taking our advice from World Health Organizations and what have you. But from from your professional experience, once we get the thumbs up and once the and once the British Boxing Border Control say, right, Frank, you can go start putting shells on again, how long do you think it would take for fighters to get themselves into fighting shape again? Because these guys they, they can't spar at the moment and, and what have you. So how long do you think it would take them to get back up to top nick? Well, if they're all ticking over as they should be, you know, as they say now, and obviously we we're in contact with their trainers, managers, and so forth. But if the guys are doing what they should be, they into pretty much into condition fairly, fairly quickly. You know, um, obviously they're, they're as you say they're missing out on their sparring. But other than the sparring, the rest of it, the road work and the the ex, you know, the groundwork and so forth, shadows, boxing, hitting bags if they got if they got bags in there. I don't know, a garage at home or if they you know, if they're doing anything like that. But they should be able to get themselves into fighting uh, mode very quickly. And uh, we as a sport gotta look at obviously we've got to be mindful of what the government are saying, but 
we can't lag behind as other sports, you know. Um, I spoke to Robert Smith uh, was it last week, and they were talking about nothing's going to happen. They're going on, banging on a bit about obviously the medical situation, and obviously doctors are needed in more important roles at the moment um, with with the virus and the, the unfortunate influx of people who've contracted it in hospitals, and also the fact that you can't afford to be taking beds up if god forbid a fighter got badly injured in a fight but if once this goes once this or hopefully when this all all um reaches its peak and it and it levels off and so forth and we do get the green light then we need to move quickly when you look at what's happening in in football and you look at other sports horse racing and so forth even ufc but certainly as far as britain's concerned uh in 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 the in premier league and and uh, the and the champion leagues, uh, sorry, championship and so forth, they're all working very, very hard now to try and find a solution because financially it's going to kill, kill some of these clubs off, and certainly in the lower leagues it will do that, and that will be the same in boxing. There will be fighters who just won't be able to apply their trade, and they will struggle. So the boxing board of control has got to be as proactive in this as the football. Um, Authorities are doing doing, and also but, the racing, the other governing bodies. They don't. For, need, we don't need to be negative. We need to be positive and looking but, to find yeah. the ways to move forward as soon as we get the green light. Frank, there's, there's there's probably two other things here in the equation as well. I really like your take on this. That and Bob Aram, your colleague, touched on this the other day as well. And I'm sure you've thought about it. The other thing is people are going to be hit very hard in the pockets by by this kind of period of. Of, of lockdown, if you like, and businesses having closed down, many of them, people are going to be hit hard in the pocket and there's going to be, so maybe will ticket prices have to be looked at? And also it's that, will people have a reticence about getting into very big crowds again? Are those two factors you might have to take into consideration? Certainly if, in the case of Dubois and Joyce, if it goes ahead on July the 11th. Well, of course you'd have to look at that. Regarding the ticket price, I mean, the tickets are, are out there. They're sold. I mean, they're with people now. They're holding on to them. Um, we've had very few um, people asking for refunds, so they're holding on to those tickets at the moment. Um, will they be reticent about getting big crowds? I, I don't know at the moment because who knows mm. when when it's going to be safe. And obviously, we're depending on, on, the, on the, um, the advisors to the government, health advisors, to give us that. Um, I I don't quite agree with Bob. I think I think there will be. I don't think we're going to go. We may not even go straight into um, events that will have the public there. We may have to go yeah. behind closed doors for smaller mm-hmm. events, and and I can see that happening. Um, contrary to people, you know, and I know the border control were, were not too happy about that. But at the end of the day, the guys who work at the boxing border control are getting their wages every week. Fighters are not. And the, I can see, you know, smaller type shows going on, maybe in 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 um, in in, in uh, restricted areas yeah. to to enable these guys to earn some money and also get some sport on TV. Regarding whether people will fork out money, um, I just I, I you know when when you look back at, at, at sort of times when the country i mean this is this is actually a very unique situation but when you look back say with a three-day week in the 70s yep. and so forth and the, the minor strike and so forth people still wanted to be entertained and, and there are a lot of people who are waiting to break out and there's a lot of young people 
No, I agree. Are probably having it more tougher than 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 sort of certainly my generation. Well, well look at the war, Frank. Look after the Second World War. There was an absolute boom yeah. in boxing after the Second World well, War, there was wasn't a, there? There was a boom. It booming people want want wanted wanting to wanted to be wanted to be entertained and so forth. At the moment, there's zero sport, zero life sport uh, on just... TV, or you can or, or to be seen. And I, I, you know, let's get it right. And it's it's wrong and stupid. They're doing it. There are people still. You know, were congregated despite this illness. Yeah. Up till last week, the beach, some beaches were full with mm. people. Um, uh, last week it was very entertaining on your podcast. You were having a right ding dong with Dana White. The first half an hour of the show tonight, we discussed that in detail. How it was a very big news story this week. How the UFC were trying to push ahead. You know, with the kind of tenaciousness, as Adam mentioned earlier, of of Dana White pushing as hard as he possibly could until his uh, pay-per-view colleagues on television, Disney and ESPN, said, no, look, it doesn't make sense to it. Can you step down from doing the event? What was your take on how hard they were pushing to still do an event behind locked doors? And what did you make of White having a pop at boxing uh, on your podcast last week? Well, regarding the, the events behind closed doors, I mean, if... It, it, and, and it's quite for me quite simplistic. If if you could get it on, then fine. But what you can't do is take away um, doctors and paramedics and yeah. and and, the, the, and even the thought of maybe having to use a hospital bed to put on a sporting event at the moment. At the moment, that has to have priority. Mm-hmm. The tenacity, the tenacity, I should say, of Dana getting something on. I can see where he comes from, and he's that type of character. And I, I, you know, a bit like, certainly I was like that, quite like that when I was younger. But you cannot do that to the detriment of the health service, whether it be in the States, here or anywhere. Well, all the detriments of the athletes or 150 people that are congregating at the event, Frank, surely. Well, but they're being all tested. I mean, it weren't just all throwing them in a room. They were all being tested. That was, I know that was going to happen. So he had that side of it, according to what's happening, covered. But I'm hearing in Japan... There is in June. They're looking to put an event on where they in an arena where they're going to have a, a rose distance between punters and two or three seats crazy. apart between punters and wearing masks. Well, it may be crazy. It may be, cra- it may be crazy in Sweden. In Sweden, they, they they are still congregating. They're still going to restaurants. They're still feel it now. People still starting to feel it, Frank. You know. Yeah, and, and they're talking about letting, I think, people in Denmark and I read some, I can't think where it was, I read somewhere else today. Again, they were, they were uh, I think it might be in Austria or something, they're thinking of putting, a, you know, allowing people to mix again. That's going to happen as this all, you know, you look at this, it's a graft, each area that's getting, each country getting affected, the graft is, is rising and rising. And then, it, then it's then it's plateauing at the infections. I'm not about the deaths at the moment, but the, the infections are plateauing. But that's because people are locked away. Once people come out again, exactly. you get, you've got to you're going to get a second wave. Of it. There's no doubt about that. Mm. Um, that that will happen. But hopefully, they're hoping. I think from this herding situation that um, people will, will build up some immunity to it. That, I mean, that's that's what the so-called theory is, and we'll see. But you know. It, it's it's time and you know as regarding Dana's concerns you know he's it, it, it's not happening and I and I think that's more from a pressure from with with ESPN mm. and uh, Disney I think that's more you know they were more worried about the the PR side of it than anything mm. but anyway it's not happening so it, it is what it is as regarding 
the ding dong or ding dong, the words, you know, his, thing, his, his take on boxing. Well, I just don't agree with that. You know, he's got mm. a view on it, and, and his sport is a totally different sport than ours because he is the governing body. He is the promoter. Mm. He is the manager, and all the athletes do it. If, you know, if I if I was the boss of the WBO or the WBC, and I was promoting the fights, and I was managing the fighters, and I was telling them what their wages are going to be, it'd be a much easier job for me. But boxing is more competitive and therefore more fragmented because there are so many promoters vying for the boxers' services. And there's so many TV yeah. companies that work with promoters who also want the boxers on their channel. But eventually things do happen and, and, and you do get events together like we did with Tyson and Deontay Wilder where, where you know TV companies work with each other in the States. And we got it yeah. over the line. And, 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 and obviously, you know, the promoters, again, their act together to make it work. So um, that 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 has happened. But you know, when you look at you look time and time again in the highest earners in sport, they're in very, inevitably boxers. They're no yeah. other sportsmen. They're boxers. Forbes list for the last ten years. Well, I'm not saying every year, but probably about seven out of, out of seven out of the last ten years or so, or eleven or twelve years, has been Mayweather or yeah. another boxer. Yeah. And there have been times when there's been two or three boxers in there. The most mm. famous athlete on the planet has always been a boxer. It's always been the heavyweight champion. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I know what you're thinking. Why has Gareth not asked anybody what's in their fridge as of yet? Well, just hold your horses, because we went up to the northeast to talk to the Sandman himself, Lewis Ritson. Of course, we talked boxing, but Gareth hit him with a big question as well. Here he is. For fighters that have had dates in the diary, and those dates have been pushed back kind of indefinitely because we don't know what's going on with coronavirus, how frustrating of a time are you finding it right now, Lewis? Yeah, it's very frustrating, but I mean, what can we do? We've got to look at the bigger picture, and that's uh, keeping safe, keeping, keeping everyone else safe, and if, it's, if the fight's got to be cancelled and got to, got to wait for further data, and that's what we've got to do. No, absolutely. April 4th, for people that are listening to this, uh, you were supposed to be out against uh, Miguel Vasquez. Uh, the temporary date that has uh, been announced since is June 27th, fingers crossed. Everything's uh, sorted, and we can get you out as soon as possible, mate. But talk to me about Vasquez, because for me, this was the, the perfect test to see where you're at 
Um, and obviously, there's a lot of people talking about bigger fights to come in the not-too-distant future. We'll get to those in a moment or two. But with Vasquez being in already with the likes of a Josh Taylor, for example, beating him, especially uh, in front of your home fans, would have set a marker down, wouldn't it? No, definitely, you know, Vasquez has been there, done that and got the T-shirt, hasn't he? And, um, and like uh, what was, what me and Eddie were talking, and he, he probably has changed his style a little bit to be a, a little bit more exciting as well than being on the road a little bit a little bit more now, where I think it would have been a good fight for the fans in a fight where Vasquez will probably leave me a few, th- a few things in there, which I can take on the sort of a fight. Lewis, um, I wanted to ask you, we had Teofimo Lopez uh, on the phone just a little while ago talking to Adam, uh, and obviously he's being scheduled to fight Vasyl Lomachenko, and he's talking about coming up, obviously you're a, a, a light, what I call a light welter, 140 pound fighter, and he's a, in the lightweight division, 135 pounds. He's talking about taking it to Vasyl Lomachenko and not respecting him too much, which he thinks people are doing. Do you think he's mm. wise to think that way against uh, Vasyl Lomachenko? Because you're a very similar type of fighter to Tiafimo in that the switch goes and you're there. I know you've tempered your career and it was a brilliant performance against Robbie Davis in October 19, which feels like such a long time ago now, doesn't it? Um, but do you think he's right in thinking that way? And would you think that way if you were going in against the Lomachenko? I think, I think he's 100% right. But I think he's got to know when to do it at the right time. Um, I don't think he can go just from the first battle and do that for, for a full 12 rounds and take needless shots and things like that. But I do think there's going to be times in the fight where the respect's going to have to go out the window and you're going to have to jump on Lomachenko and, and try and hurt him and try and, and try and hit him hard, which is... a a lot easier said than done, but I think where he's coming from, I think he's 100% right in that. Um, now, it's my regular feature. It's almost my obsession while we're all on lockdown. Adam knows where I'm going with this, right? <laughs> now, I want you to walk over to your fridge. I want you to get off the sofa or out of bed where you're probably lying right now, right? Right. I want you to, I want you to walk to your fridge and tell us what's in your fridge. What's in it? Well... What's in the fridge? I've got I've strawberries, melons. I've got eggs. You eat that eggs as well. I'm not. I'm not lying. Not lying. Uh, You're on the healthy uh, stuff, Lewis. You're on the healthy stuff. I thought there'd be a few healthy. cans no. in there. Come on, man. Come on. So, so you've got fruit, and what else is there? There's veg. There's lot of. See, I get the fruit and veg parcels delivered off um, Yeah. A lad called Nick the Fish from Newcastle who helps us out with uh, fruit and veg. So. Come and drop he'll be getting a few. He'll be getting a few more orders now. Yeah, yeah. Make the veg. Yes, well, you will. And so it's full of that. I'll, I'll not lie. Uh, the girlfriend got a, a bottle of gin in there. Cut a bit of gin. <laughs> <laughs> Good lad. No, there's, no, there's no Nuki Brown in there, is there? No, there's not. I, I've, I've been teetotal for about four and a half years now, guys. So I don't, I don't touch stuff. And I've got the, the hard stuff in the, the coconut water. That's which, it. Uh, wasn't open earlier, but it's half empty now. So the girlfriend must have been. In that on the slide, you get the You have got over the last few weeks of the ten I've now asked, ten boxes. Yeah, you have got yeah. you have got the best. You've got the cleanest, best be the yeah. best behaved fridge. Yeah, cleanest fridge. <laughs> you have well, it. Hopefully, uh, hopefully, Neil Fadden, the coach, is listening to that to so give us some uh, 
because <laughs> uh, the feedback when I get back to the gym Monday because he thinks yeah. that a load of crap. But uh, <laughs> as you can see, the, the, the fridge is nice and healthy. So good. Uh, I'm, all, I'm also a bit. I'm also a big fan. I don't know about you, Gareth, and I don't know if you've got yeah. these people in your phone. I'm also a big fan of people whose nickname is actually their job. Like what you've just said there, Mick the Veg. I'm a big fan of that. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a big fan yeah, of all that, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's a good I, I, I ado- yeah, Die the Chock did a little delivery for me earlier. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, top stuff. Listen, we've seen you online this week having a little bit of uh, a chat. I think you were talking to Eddie on his Instagram. Uh, about the potential of St. James's Park. You're getting a lot of fans excited here. I know that you've obviously got to take care of Miguel Vasquez, but a lot of uh, fans are starting to get excited at the potential of fighting at a football stadium against someone like Regis Progress. That is an unbelievable fight, Lewis. Yeah, it's, it's an unbelievable fight, and it's a very hard one as well. But when, when fights like that get off at St. James's Park, and I know I've seen a few links where I was getting the, getting the big stick saying that, you know, he would he would do it in a couple of rounds and stuff like that. But you know, when you get offered fights like that, and you know, no one's ever fought St James's Park before, you you can raise your game on another couple of levels. And um, I I believe I could do that, and I believe them them fights aren't far away. We set mm. up at this the start. Yeah, three fights this year, three wins. And then we will have St James's Park. Sadly, with everything that's going on, yeah, doesn't look like it's going to be three fights. But you know, we'll get this next one out the way, and and um. You know, Eddie was already saying a few things, and if I get past Vasquez, and uh, the, the, that fight could be next after that. You, you you mentioned getting back into training on Monday. Serious question: This, uh, as Adam just mentioned, June the twenty seventh is your scheduled fight with Miguel Vasquez um, at Newcastle Arena. But I, I mean, I'm saying this: I don't think it's going to go ahead, and that's just no, my instinct. Well, so how do you how do you mentally deal with it where it might go ahead but you might not know till you might not know for four more weeks? Yes, yeah, so, well, you know Eddie Hearn must have sent a, a watch after the matching fight I guess and um, it said that you know like, probably the boxing in June won't won't be going ahead, but the job as professional as professional boxers you know mm. we need to be in the gym we need to, we need to be staying fit. Yeah, and, well and that's what we need to do, and I think that the boxers that are going to do that it will give them the edge when the fights do come back around. Because I think they'll come thick and fast, and I think boxers will not get much time, and I don't think they'll get the full camps that they want. So hmm. we play hard all year round anyway in a, in these camps. So we're we're back in the gym Monday, and it'll be full flow when the day comes after that, and we'll be ready to fight. Now, coming away from the world of boxing and into the world of mixed martial arts, this week was supposed to be the build-up to the biggest UFC fight of all time, Habib versus Tony Ferguson at UFC 249. Last week, it all got pulled. We've got a few stories to tell as to the the chronological order of how everything happened. Joining Gareth uh, on Skype last week was Ariel Helwani, ESPN reporter. These two give us a bit of a breakdown. I've seen that you've been very, very busy because one of your major roles, of course, covering the UFC, it's really been in the news in the last few weeks. Um, How has that been covering that story that obviously it's changed in the last 24, 36 hours? But, you know, was it extraordinary that 
the UFC, the Ultimate Fighting Championship, was still going to have an event in spite of the this kind of global pandemic and the lockdowns going on all over the place. Yeah, it was uh, it was exhausting at times. It was fascinating to cover because, you know, here in the United States, sport kind of shut down around March 11th. And so I was thinking about this last night. It feels like we got an extra month of stuff to cover. Like everything kind of shut down for the rest of the basketball and, you know, uh, uh, hockey, baseball guys. But we had, you know, we had an event on the 14th and that was the one in Brazil. And then all this stuff about 249 and Habib and Tony Ferguson and Justin Gaethje and the island and all this stuff. So, I mean, I was, I was saying this to my wife. I feel like I, I, I'm working harder now than I was back when things were normal. It was, uh, it was really crazy to see how it all panned out. It was crazy to see the, all the twists and turns, uh, the ups and downs. But in the end, uh, I think that sanity prevailed, and uh, I don't think it should have gotten this far. I don't think it should have even been a question whether or not they put on UFC 249. I don't think they should have. Uh, it, was, it was not a great look for the sport, and I'm just happy it didn't actually happen. I feel for the fighters. I feel for the fact that they don't make money. I feel for the ones like Jessica Andrade, who flew to Las Vegas to prepare for this fight. I feel for Ian Kutalaba, who flew from Moldova. I feel for Alistair Overeem, who on Wednesday flew to take a fight on May 16th. And now, you know, who knows if he's going to fight, you know? So uh, I, I think at times it was a little bit ignorant, selfish, reckless. I'm just happy it's not happening because MMA and any combat sport should not be above the rest of humanity. And if the rest of humanity has to sit at home right now from Australia to Thailand to Brazil to British Columbia, MMA fighters should stay at home as well. Because the thing is... Um... It was clear, as you say, from around March the 11th. I mean, I was in uh, uh, Connecticut at the time and I'd been in New York. Um, and, you know, I was at a, an MMA event that was called off in the 11th hour, uh, Bellator MMA. But everything was shutting down at the time. Basketball had gone, got home to the UK. And there was a steady kind of accumulation then of, you know, things shutting, the shutters coming down very, very slowly on everything until we got to the point where it was clear that boxing was off for a month. Boxing was off for two months. The British Boxing Board Control called it off. Bob Arum wanted to carry on with events behind closed doors. Eddie Hearn was really keen to because we know how promoters are very creative characters. They have to put an event together, a venue, fighters, all those things. But for me... Where I thought the UFC might pull the plug was when they were trying to get Leon Edwards to fly to from, from Birmingham, Birmingham the, the, the British fighter, to suddenly fly to fight Tyron Woodley somewhere in the United States because London had been cancelled because we were off to do our show, our fight night show from the London event. And um, it was gone. And then Leon Edwards had been asked in like 12 hours to get his team together, get to an airport um buy the, the tickets get to america to go where he mm. and he was right to say no because common sense which ain't common yeah um told you no sit tight at the moment keep your resources keep your powder dry because logistically and logically it takes 150 people to run an event basic staff tv crews this is made for tv sports how can 150 people gather together when we're seeing hospitals crowded with people with COVID-19? It just does not make sense. And I actually think that going forwards, 
And I've spoken to the boxing authorities here and the boxing authorities around the World Boxing Council. They think that um, medicals that clear you of COVID-19 when you fight are probably going to be very important going forward and maybe mandatory. Do you think that will happen in MMA? It should. be, As you know, boxing and MMA play by different rules. Um, and, and perhaps that's why this was able to get you know, as far as it did with the UFC. But what made me feel so uncomfortable about it was, I don't know if you remember back in 1997, there was an event called uh, UFC 12. It was supposed to happen in Buffalo, New York. And a couple yep. of days before the event, the New York State Athletic Commission said, you're not doing this, you're banned. And then they tried to move it to Oregon and Oregon said no. And so they, they moved it then to Dothan, Alabama, 200 miles away from Birmingham, Alabama. And didn't they? They went on trucks. Yes. And this, this is what it had become. You know, with all due respect to Tachi Palace, you know, there's no regulation there. And the UFC found the one place that would allow them to come in. They're going to take a lot of money from them. And, uh, you know, there's no money being brought into this casino. So I could understand why they wanted to do it. But it just it was nonsensical at this point. What were we doing? What were we trying to do? Like this idea that we need entertainment. You don't need entertainment. There's a million Netflix shows that you can watch right now. There's a million movies out there. You don't need fighting right now, okay? The same way you don't need soccer, football, basketball, baseball. You don't need these things right now. And that's a very selfish point of view. And the idea that these fighters were going to descend from all over the world and they were going to tie up medical resources when there's people dying by the thousands, to me, was a hard thing to come to terms with. It was a hard thing to come to grips with. There's a, this, this won't mean much to you, but the, the quote, that I keep thinking about this past week. There's a very famous American football coach named Dennis Green. May he rest in peace. And several years ago, his team, the Arizona Cardinals, lost a very uh, close game to the Chicago Bears. And at the time, the Chicago Bears were one of the best teams in the NFL. And the Cardinals were not, but they almost beat them. And at the press conference, Dennis Green shows up and says, they were who we thought they were. They were exactly who we thought they were. And we could have beaten these guys if we left them off the hook. And you know what I think of this week? I think of MMA is what we thought it was. And we have, we have confirmed the beliefs of so many because so many thought that MMA over the years was cage fighting, it was barbaric, it was ruthless, all this stuff. And we had reached a point that maybe we were mainstream. And in the end, we showed our true colors. And it was disappointing to see how far it played out. Uh, no, I agree. Because I'm unconventional. You're unconventional. What are we doing? We're locked down in our own homes at the moment. We live unusual lives. I bet you, you're desperate to go to the studio rather than homeschooling your kids at the moment, you know, which is obviously brilliant fun as well, because I know how much you love your family. But I thought that as well. Why be, why be the outlaws at this time when for years we didn't want to be the outlaws? You and I have put the years in. I started covering this sport 15 years ago when at the Telegraph it was seen as cage fighting, dirty. But I, I hopefully in the way I covered it and the way I covered people, changed, helped to change the way it was perceived um, as a mainstream sport with serious athletes, with people who are extraordinarily interesting. Um, and I completely agree with you. It's like, why be the rebel at this time? Um, and I think it's a very, very well-made point. And I think I was fascinated. I didn't... I. I, I mean, I said on last week's show, I don't see it happening. This, the plug will be pulled on this. That was my instinct all the way through because it was nonsensical, irresponsible. And um, frankly, um, you know, I, the, the problem is 
people want to be entertained. And on social media, um, the collective, the people have a big voice. Of course they want to see an event. There are millions of events or hundreds or thousands of events. I guarantee you that they haven't seen. Rerun those right now. Mm. There aren't. There are not, I bet you there aren't more than a couple of million people out there who've seen every single major MMA event there's ever been. I've got a whole library of stuff here that I've still got to get through. I'm sure you have. You cannot watch every event. Let's rerun the greatest ever every Saturday night. Um, over here on in the UK, they had a they had a Conor McGregor night recently. You know, yeah. that's all. Just be creative. Um, right. You know, um, do a live video link up with Dana White and three of the fighters that would have fought, fought on the night and say, how you, what are you going through tonight, guys? Mentally, what are you like? Let's do a video link for, for an hour with Khabib and Tony, with, to, with Dana White in the middle. I'm, I'm hmm. creating an idea here now that they'll sure. do. Um, yeah. Just do a live show on Zoom and put it out. It'll get millions of viewers. Do you know? I so, agree. so there's loads of ways of... of um, isolating ourselves and entertaining ourselves without putting people at risk at the moment. Our sport is risky enough as it is. There's no need to cause greater risks. Let me ask you, um, when you were covering it in the last few weeks and you cover it in intimate detail, did you have moments where you're thinking, I can't believe this, it is actually going to go ahead? And did you think, do I need to get down there and cover it? Uh, so there were moments where I thought, yeah, it looks like maybe they'll be able to pull this off because of the the fact that it was happening on a tribal land and tribal lands in the United States are sovereign. However, uh, as I've said to multiple people, there wasn't enough money on the planet to get me to go to that Good. event. I was not going to that event. I was not going on a plane. I was not doing it. And I saw some some of my colleagues, I was talking to them. And they're like, oh, we have to cover it to make sure it's on the up and up. Not during a pandemic, my man. Uh, we're not doing the Lord's work by covering MMA. Like, don't kid yourselves here. We're still in the toy department, as Howard Cosell once said. We're in the toy department of the newsroom. You're not doing, you know, you're not doing, like I said, the Lord's work by covering mixed martial arts to make sure the UFC is on the up and up. No, thanks. I want to be healthy for my kids and my wife. So I'll cover it from home. Absolutely. And it's not like I'm trying to take a moral stance by boycotting it. I'm still covering it, talking about it 24-7. I just don't feel comfortable. You know, I went to UFC 248 in, um, in Las Vegas, Israel Desanya and, and uh, Yoel Romero. And in hindsight, probably wasn't very smart in the midst of that March 8th, March, March 7th. And so I never considered, it never got to that point. No one asked me to go, but I would have felt very uncomfortable going. So there you go. Hopefully you're up to speed now with everything that's going on with the UFC. One man that he's looking forward to fighting once again is uh, the man that holds the BMF belt. Don't ask, I can't say what that stands for, but if you follow MMA, you'll know exactly what it stands for. Jorge Masvidal, join me on Skype from Florida for a bit of a chinwag. How close were we to seeing you at 249? Were we close? Were people, were, was, was there a deal on the table for you to do that in a couple of weeks' time? <laughs> there was a deal on the table, but uh, when the full deal and the whole extent of it got brought through and how it was going to play out, they... they uh, that, you know, the budget really wasn't there yeah. in, in a way. For what we were asking, the price tag that I put out there, they didn't want to pay this other guy's, is, uh, who knows if he was in or not, you know, but on my end, my price wasn't met, you know. And for, for the risk re to reward factor, I wanted to get compensated. And that compensation really wasn't there, you know. So we weren't too far off either. We, 
we can make it work in the future for a fact, you know. I think in uh, in July I'll be beheading this guy for the whole world to see. Was that just uh, the Usman offer, or was there other fighters offered to you as well? Um, there was yeah. fights offered. There was like <laughs> there was like ideas. Okay. Okay. Would you do this? Would you do that? And, and different price tags were thrown around, you know, and uh, and stuff. So we, we didn't really come to an agreement, you know. We're gonna t- well, listen. We're gonna talk resurrection in a minute, yeah. But are, are you enjoying? Uh, the media creation of stuff because obviously the, the the diary of a street fighter building up to the bmf title a lot of fans jumped on board with that man a lot of people loved it so is it something that you want to get more and more involved with we're we're mainly just gonna go off the fans what they say um, yeah me and my team will go through the comments we ask the fans <coughs> questions and we review them and we see what's the best What's the best outcome and what the fans want and the type of content that we can give them, we just provide it, you know. I don't I don't mind providing access like that uh, of my life like five, six weeks before the fight takes place. I'm kind of used to it already, you know, so I, I, I don't mind it at that stage at all. So I think it'll be something we'll keep going. Who's the, whose idea was the multiple personalities of Kamara Usman? <laughs> I thought it might be. Whoever put that nah, together nah, has done a wicked job, the fine, the, the fine editing goes to... Uh, my friend, I don't know if he wants to remain anonymous or, or get the full credit from it. Uh, he's heavy in the industry. But obviously, you, you know I'm not the editor. I just had ideas, uh, pieces and stuff. And I'm like, man, I don't even got to say nothing, man. This, If this is a, an electoral campaign, this is exactly what I do. I just let this idiot murder himself. It's one week. He loves vanilla. The next, it's strawberry. This guy's going through a midlife crisis already, and I'm going to bring it to an end for him soon. No. What, what did you make? Without being what negative, either. I just, I just want to get no. that fight signed, get in there, yeah. do my job. You know. <clears throat> what did you make of the confrontation that you guys had at the Super Bowl? Because that went around the world. You know what I mean? People filmed that. That's where, that, when you guys met each other. Was it at the Super Bowl on Radio Row at the Super Bowl? Oh, yeah, yeah, at the Radio Row at the Radio Row at Super Bowl. That's not a confrontation to me, man. I was just t- because he's always he's he's always going around in the air and in the interviews, and I had just heard something he had said to. Uh, to somebody on live TV and they relayed the message to me. So I went straight. Instead of me, I, I don't like relaying messages like, oh, tell so-and-so, you know. Maybe I might if I don't have a chance to see you. But I'd rather just say it to your face. So when I saw him, I said, what a better time. He's sending messages to people. I'll tell you right to your face. Hey, buddy. Hey, excuse me. Hey, how you doing? Hey, I'm going to f*** you up. I'm not going to tell. I, that's exactly what I did. I'm, I'm not going to tell so-and-so. I'm going to tell you to your face because that's how much a man I am. I'm going to f*** you up when we get this fight time. It's going to happen and I'm going to and that's it and then from there I, I just told him that you know I was getting ready to walk away you know where ready just want to say my piece and then he went off crazy and you know do something, do something. there's like 20 guys in, in between us man you know I can't do nothing especially you being loud you would have stayed in in the indoor talking voice we could have done something but you made such a scene for everybody to see and getting between the real man couldn't happen you know but he exposed himself again he showed his cards again on that day and I thank him it's a big fight, man. It's a big fight, isn't it? When that guy, when that comes around, that's a huge fight. Uh, yeah, it's a it's a big fight. Would you say it's the biggest of your career to, to this point, fighting for the world weight title or not? It, it parts of it, yes. Parts of it, no. Because it, it, a fight is is just more than the guy that you have in front of you. It's also the moment. Yeah. It'll be fighting for the UFC title, so that's huge. But the skill set. 
No, my brother. I this uh <laughs> this animal hunter has tamed much more ferocious animals and wild beasts than this mere insect in front of me. So as far as that goes, skill level goes, no. This individual will be tamed on that night. This matador will tame the wild animal and with ease as well. What skill set does Kamaru bring to that fight? What what what, what is the challenge for you that night? Oh man, he's a, he's a boring ass dude, man. And here's the thing: if I'm if I'm speaking from a, from straight tactical point, he's not gonna want to strike, and he doesn't really like fully commit to wrestling either. All he fully commits to is stalling, just mm-hmm. being a stall machine, man. You know, for the first time he didn't saw with this guy, and it was a kickboxing match, and the world gave him all types of praise for it because he wasn't his usual boring self, and he actually threw some fish. But we all know he's not going to throw fish when it comes to him. He's going to try to act like he's going to throw fish, and then he's going to go for the takedown. And he's going to quickly find out, I'll never get held down by that guy. I won't get out grappled by that guy. Listen, uh, I want to talk about the resurrection, right? But I don't want to just talk about 2019, because for me, resurrection started maybe eight, 18 months previous. The the other day, BT Sport was showing a rerun at 217, the card, and you fought Stephen Thompson on that card, right? And I, I was watching it at home, and I was thinking to myself, it doesn't look like this version of Jorge Masvidal, you know? There's definitely been a Jorge Masvidal 2.0 that we've now seen since since 2019. Talk to me about the fight with Stephen Thompson, then 2018 not fighting, going away, obviously on the reality TV show, and then landing in London, where obviously you did what you did and started a phenomenal year. For starters, I'll say, man, Thompson, I've always stopped before the fight and after the fight, he's a stud, you know? And I, I had to be very, very on point and calculated. And I had I had done my homework on Thompson. I did a math formula on him. And where I messed up was is that I didn't adjust enough the right times. Like once I saw that the formula of, of, uh, of plan A wasn't working, I should adapt and go. But I was so with this, I'm going to catch him, I'm going to knock him out. I'm going to catch him. I'm going to knock him out. That I, I, I didn't switch myself up. So that's something that as soon as I, I left from that fight, I saw so many other avenues that I could have took the fight to, and I didn't. I just stayed in this one thing, made myself super predictable, was in a, in a steady rhythm of just insane. And I said, no, nah, that, that had to change dramatically. It's strategy is everything. I can't I can't be this, this uh, shell of myself that I had brought to the front line of a battle because I was just so insistent on just one strategy and there's many strategies to a battle so hats off to Tom because he fought amazing that night and he was very lucid and he, he did his thing man um but there's been a lot of changes since that moment you know strategically well that's the thing that's the thing we spoke about it previously man it's the mental change of it that year out not fighting at all in 2018 and spending a little bit of time around other athletes from other disciplines on the reality tv show you've spoke about that show itself of how that time away, weirdly, what we're experiencing now in isolation, kind of got you absolutely lasered in. And we saw the re- results of that in, in 2019. Talk to me about the mental change. What, what, what is the change? What has, what has changed in Jorge Masvidal's head? Well, uh, a, a tribute to that change is, uh, is the Thompson fight helped as well, as well as the Maya fight, as well as any fight I lost in the UFC or before the UFC, and all of my losses, I sat down 
objectively and tried to be, obviously I was going to be biased, but I tried to be as least biased as I could because it's just me by myself. So who am I lying to? Only to me by myself. So I, I really dug down inside and, and, and thought, what times did I have the best performances at? What did I eat? How did I sleep that night? What did I do? And at first my thoughts were like a clergy court that hasn't been filed in years and my thoughts were scattered everywhere. But the days turned into weeks and the weeks turned into months and I was able to, to put every moment that I could think of in my head in its own file, in its own file box and just dissect that situation. It's like, how, how do I do better? If, if I sleep like this, how do I perform better? If I do that, and that mm -hmm. came up with a with a formula for me. That formula, though, that's like the I, I wrote it on the chalkboard. Now I gotta go out there in real life and, and get it done. And that's where the, the the mind change really has to flick. I have to tell myself, I found this formula now, right? But if I half-ass it, what does it matter? Because if you think you can or you think you can't, you're right. You know, so that that's where the, the real mind switch comes. Like, I, I think I have this formula. I think I, I have this secret recipe for fighting right here in my hand. But I, I still have so much work to do to bring this into the real world. And that's where you got to make that switch. And, man, you got to give it all you got into your craft. Finally, on this week's podcast, as guests go, time for a feel-good story. We were joined by Macaulay McGowan, a boxer in Manchester, who is uh, raising awareness for a, for an illness that you probably don't know too much about. I won't say any more about it. Let's get over to him for a full explanation and a conversation of what he's doing alongside other people in the community to raise awareness. Talk me through um, the reason behind this. Talk to me about HIE. Talk to me about uh, your son, Albert, and talk to me about everything that has brought you to uh, this month and what you're attempting to do. Right, so um, HAE stands for hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy. Don't ask me to say that again because I've been practicing <laughs> it. But, <Well> perfect. <laughs> so basically, it means a, a, a lack of oxygen uh, before, during, or after birth uh, in babies causing brain damage. And on the 18th of December, uh, my son, he was born and um, in a bad way, had to be resuscitated and, uh, and whatnot. And basically, with... Um, babies that get severe lack of oxygen at birth, they have to be cooled on a cooling bed for like 72 hours. Mm. So, you know, 10 days of um, in neonatal care and whatnot. And, um, you know, it was just a hard time, you know, stress on the family and, and everything like that. And, you know, I've lived with it ever since, you know, with HIE, you don't know what, what can happen. Like, they can't tell you if they're going to live or not in the first few days. They can't tell you how they're going to um, end up, you know, in the future and what disability they may or may not have. So, you know, it's always been playing on my mind. And, you know, I've always wanted to do something for him. Like, I just thought it's been a few months now and I'm thinking, I've, I've kind of been running away from the problems, like, of, of what's actually happened and, like, not actually faced it head on. Yeah. And due to the coronavirus and everything, like, I've been locked down. I haven't been able to go to work. I haven't been able to go to the gym. So I've literally, you know, I've had to be in the house and I've had to face the problem in front of me. And I thought, I ain't running from this anymore. I'm gonna, I'm gonna face it head on. And like, I can't change what's happened to him in the before, you know, at birth. And I can't change what's gonna happen in the future. But you know, 
if I can make the world a better place for him, you know, and bring, you know, make it a better place for him and make people aware of what happened, then, you know, that's my duty as his father. So that's uh, that, that's what I've been trying to do, really, trying to spread a positive message and trying to, you know, spread awareness on uh, HAE and, mm. um, and whatnot. Um, so the charity peeps, they're, they're actually the only registered um, charity dedicated to HAE. So... They're, they're actually quite local from Stockport. Steve yeah. and Sarah Lamb, they actually went through the process themselves of HAE with their daughter, Heidi. So, you know, you've got people like that who are dedicating their lives to helping other families with HAE. And there's me, like, kind of, like, trying to brush it under the carpet and, like, not trying to think about it too much and coming to terms with what's happened. So I thought, you know, it was... It, on April the 1st, I was doing a lot of running. I did 50 miles, so I thought... Um, HAE Awareness Day is coming up, and I thought, well, let's make this. HAE, it's only the second ever HAE Awareness Day in history, so that's how unknown the yeah. actual um, the, the actually is. So I thought, well, you know, I've got to go big here, got to go big. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> out of nowhere, I just thought. I remember seeing Eddie Izzard uh, years ago do it as, as a kid doing marathons. So I thought, yeah. one day I'll be able to do that. So out of nowhere, I've never done a marathon before. I just thought, I'll do it. I'll do that. I'll somehow do 29 marathons in 29 days. That, stop so, there for a second, right? It's not like doing one marathon, but you challenge yourself, and, he, and you heard him right, 29 marathons in 29 days. So you were going to do a marathon, near enough every single day of April, yeah? That's what you're going to do. Bear in mind, you've never done one previously. Yeah, that, that's... that's it's, it's easy saying these things when you, you know when you're in the comfort of your own home having, yeah. a, having a brew having a biscuit thinking I don't know what I'll do so anyway <laughs> the next day comes along and I think right so I'll set off on my run and you know it was, and I was like I was doing Facebook videos and I was like yeah come on McCall you know get behind me and stuff and um, I actually did really well my first one I did it in like three and a half hours that's amazing but, oh my oh. god yeah so I thought wow the pain is unbelievable so I don't know how I got through a second one and I certainly don't know how I got through a third one and then I got through a half marathon on the fourth day where my legs were giving in a bit, my knees were all over the show and I thought, I'm a big believer in um, you know staying at home and saving lives and I thought, eventually, this is going to take me about 10 hours. So I thought, <laughs> mm-hmm. I thought I'm just going to have to cut my losses, uh, live to fight another day and... Uh, and I will do it one day, I, I promise you that. And uh, maybe with a bit more planning and a bit more uh, guidance and training, I, I, I'm going to go back to that challenge in the future and I will complete it. But, I don't know if you've seen this, Gareth, the beauty of this now is that other fighters, I know the Crawlers seen it, Tyson's seen it, and a few other people, and obviously the community in, in Manchester and, and now the wider community has obviously seen what Macaulay's been attempting to do and other people, obviously, now in, in, in coronavirus lockdown, have, they're out doing the, let's say they're out doing an half an hour or an hour's worth of running or what have you, and they're tagging him in it, and he's basically then using those miles as the miles that he'd, he'd challenged himself well, to do. So that's the challenge for you now, Gareth. Get on that bike and go and get some miles no, no, in it's not, it's, it's not even a challenge when I hear this wonderful human being and father, Macaulay, <laughs> because, and I'm very touched by, you know, I mean, I've covered... I think it's eight Paralympic Games now, and yeah. Yeah. Uh, disability sport is very, very close to my heart. And um, what's your son's name? 
Albie McGowan. Albie Thomas McGowan, he's called. Well, well, uh, lovely Albie Thomas McGowan is probably four months old now. I'm thinking yeah. that there may be some cerebral palsy um, from the birth. Um, and yeah. I'm looking forward to seeing him, me covering him in the Paralympics in about 15, 16, 17 <laughs> years' time. Because if he's got well, his father's fighting spirit, he'll be at the Paralympics for Great Britain. Uh, you know what, uh, thank you for saying that, I really appreciate it, it's mad, you know, um, you're in you're in intensive care and your baby's been born and you've you've had this whole, like, you're kind of grieving a loss of everything you've expected, mm. and for some mm. reason, when your baby's in neonatal, I don't know why sports become so apparent, you're like, wow, he's never going to be able to do this, never going to be able to do that, but, you know, I, I do believe no matter what a disability is or, or whatever yeah. it is, will, I'll, I'll make sure that um, he gets where he needs to be in life and, you know, you don't have to worry well, about anything like that. Well, I, I've got up to 15 miles in my um, cycles. I don't go too far. I'm right out in the countryside. I Next yeah. week... I will do 26 miles on my bike for you. And let's get in touch with each other after the show. No, that, it's that's great, yeah. Yeah, I will definitely do one of your marathons for you. It saves me getting my hair shaved off, let's be honest. That's what I'm trying to avoid. Because <laughs> I really, do, I was dreading that someone getting me to shave my hair off because I got a Samson complex and I could not shave it off. But, um, <laughs> Samson lose all your strength. That's it. Exactly. Um, look, um, one of the other things that I'm obsessed with at the moment Obviously, you're a boxer and you're in training. Can, can I poke into your fridge tonight and find out what's in your fridge? <laughs> my, 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 my fridge? Yeah, man. Yes, uh, in he, your he fridge. Like, he, he likes to make sure Everyone, you're eating clean, Macaulay. He likes to listen, make sure you, uh, is, you stay in ticket exactly. over. Is your fridge not one of your great friends at the moment? Uh, well, it, it's, it's got a few GU cheesecakes in there. So. Oh, Macaulay, <laughs> lad, you're letting yourself down. What are you doing, man? You should be fruit and veggie in there, lad. Uh, no, uh, I thought I thought I could combat the bad diet with all these big runs, but uh... that's it. That's it. Treat yourself to a few digestives on the back end. Yeah, I know what you're doing. No, uh, <laughs> I d- can, can can I all urge you as well, um, Macaulay? Go and look up. Twelve years ago, I wrote about a guy who called himself this Blind Dave Healy. He raised three yeah. million pounds for uh, sight, uh, unsighted charities. Um, yeah. And he did, he did, I remember covering this, he did seven marathons in seven days in seven continents, and he's totally wow. blind, yeah? Um, and wow. yeah, blind, blind Dave Healy, he's a lunatic, but he's a brilliant man. He all, but he also swam in icy waters, um, he, he, he swam out to Alcatraz in San Francisco, he did a 160 mile run across the Sahara Desert, um, and he also walked the Great Wall of China. So you're only just getting started, I warn you. <laughs> yeah. No, I, they, you know, this is a lifetime commitment. You know, my son's going to grow and uh, I'm going to keep... As long, as long, along with the boxing, you know, I've got big uh, aspirations for the boxing as well. But, you know, this is also another focus I've got now, uh, dedicating a lot of time to helping the charity peeps, you know, so they can keep helping families that uh, found themselves in the HIE journey. So... You know, it's Brilliant. a lifelong thing, and I'm, I'm sure in the future you'll see me uh, p- crop up now and again, you know, long after the boxing, do some crazy, <laughs> crazy expedition or whatnot. But, you know, it, it's something about the, the long-distance running that, you know, makes you have to face uh, face crazy things. It, it's, it, it's a, there's a beauty in it. There's a beauty in all the carnage of being broken. There's something about it that I'm, I'm yeah. quite addicted to, but... 
you know, the the families of people who've gone through HAE and, you know, certainly my son and, you know, trying to raise money, you know, it just keeps me going, so. Brilliant. Listen, on Instagram, for those that are listening to this, it's at Macaulay McGowan Boxing, yeah? That's the that's the account. Make sure you follow him up. I'm, I'm right in saying that. I've got that exactly bang on, haven't I, yeah. mate? Yeah, yeah, of course. And it's, uh, and it's, it's the hashtag herd of HIE. Is that the one that you yeah. want people to have a look at? Yeah. Yeah, herd of HIE. That's what um, the charity peep started about a year ago. And yeah, herd of HIE. Yeah. Okay. So if you're out and about on your uh, on your runs whilst you're allowed to do this during uh, lockdown and what have you, tag him in it because mm-hmm. it all adds to the uh, accumulation of uh, of miles that he's going on. I mean, it has gone crazy. The amount of people that have gone uh, got involved with this has, has just been absolutely crackers <laughs> over the last week, hasn't it, mate? <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah. Like, I've, I've got, I, I think uh, 29 marathons in 29 days is like. Uh, I think it worked out about 700 and odd, 80 odd miles, and I, I had done about 90 of them. And you know, over the last couple of days, the amount of people tagging me in the cycling and the running, you know, it's got his well exceeded that now. Now it's just like everyone is doing exercise, whether you're out and about or. You don't normally exercise. I've got people who don't normally exercise tagging me in, in, in it yeah. now, and that, that's amazing. Yeah, exactly. It's wonderful. So people are just half an hour just to walk here or whatever, just log it down, and you're going to post it anyway. So you might as well just hashtag herd of HAE or HAE awareness, and you know, just get the message out there because more people that know about it, um, you know, because. It becomes that when you're in that neonatal unit, HAE, I, I didn't know what it was. <laughs> you know, yeah, so yeah. I can't expect other people to know what it was. So, and like, you know, it's a crazy journey, but, you know, with everyone supporting it and, you know, getting out there, it just makes it so much easier for families going through it and they don't feel so alone. You're so Mate, inspirational, Macaulay. Honestly, I'm feeling, I'm feeling. My hairs are standing up on my neck tonight. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank that's you so much. That's a hairy neck, mate, let me tell you. Now, <laughs> yeah, yeah. now, whilst you're in lockdown, you're going to want some fights to watch. I picked a boxing one. Gareth picked one from the world of MMA. Here we are. Here's your homework. We'll start with boxing, shall we? Because these guys gave us three absolute belters. But the first one, really was something special. Listen to this. So how much does Barrera have left? Is there anything left for Morales to learn? Will it be Morales' blistering overhand right, or will it be Barrera's left hook to the body? Barrera comes back, doubling up with the left hook to the body, his best punch, and a right-hand shot to the body as well, and a vicious right cross. What a fight! Trying to play the clock and spiel. On Morales' ribs. Here comes Morales. Both fighters landing. Uppercut by Barrera. Morales comes back with an uppercut in the right hand and the left and a right and lands them all. Over the years, there have been some unforgettable matchups between great Mexican fighters. This will stand the test of comparison with any of them. Two left touch by Barrera and Morales is wobbled. Morales using the ropes to steady himself. Almost went down, and there's the first knockdown of Eric Morales' career. To the unified champion by split decision, it's on another Tijuana, Mexico, Eric Terrible Morales. The Ring Magazine, fight of the year in the year 2000, Eric Morales versus Marco Antonio Barrera. Number one, obviously, they went on to fight. 
on three occasions, but the first one, for me, was the best of the bunch. It was an absolute firecracker. Uh, Morales getting his hand uh, raised by split decision. Uh, a decision that I actually disagree with, Gareth. I don't know where you're at, uh, if you remember that fight. I actually had mm-hmm. Barrera uh, by two rounds in that. Uh, mm-hmm. But it was, uh, I think it was 114-113, 115-112 to Morales and 114-113 to Barrera. An absolute ding-dong, which set up a fantastic uh, second. And then that set up an absolute cracking uh, rubber match as well with both getting a victory each in the first two fights. An absolute beautiful, beautiful battle at Bantamweight. Oh, no, I was absolutely. And I was lucky enough, Adam, to cover... Um, live fights with both of those men not those that trilogy um, I missed out on all three of them I can't remember why I was there could have been other events going on here in the UK but I certainly covered Eric Morales live and Barrera live on several occasions they were they were extraordinary dance partners because yep. they had an ability to they both had amazing chins they both had very fast twitch fiber and were vo- both very aggressive counter-punching fighters. So you put all that together and it was just a war every time. Um, they were their, their trilogy of fights has gone down in the annals of not just world boxing, but particularly Mexican boxing history because of the styles that they both have. El Terrible and, and Barrera both have... Um, a very, very dear p- uh, place in the heart of Mexican fighters. And whenever um, Juan Manuel Marquez or Canelo, or Canelo Alferez is fighting in Las Vegas, you get one of these guys, one or the other, coming and working on uh, Deportes, uh, covering the fight. And they're, they're real gentlemen as well. Um, mm. They both put on a bit of weight now these days, but, you know, um, you know both into their mid-40s now. But... Brilliant, brilliant fighters. They, and, and, and old school as well. Brilliant technique. Had done it since they were 16. Marco Antonio Barrera, by the way, was a qualified lawyer, which yeah, is very rare tell, as yeah. well. Yeah. Mm. Um, so he didn't even need to box, but he just loved it. I mean, of course, that's. I think it's one of the great victories or one of the great names on Amir Khan's career that he's got Barrera on there um, from that time that he fought him and it was stopped on a cut. I think it was in the mm. fifth round and mm. Khan got the decision absolute legends the pair of them you um you actually created a bit of a moment for me when we were most recently in uh, las vegas for the tyson fury deontay wilder clash um obviously every every man and his dog from the world of boxing were there that night we everybody knows that i am mike tyson was there um only a couple of seats further down from us i think were were mexican tv and you've just mentioned uh, mm. Marque, uh marquez's name there and he was literally sat five seats down from me wasn't he and that from our commentary position which was a real moment for me took my breath away a little bit uh, but i think it was on it might have been weighing day or maybe the, the press day on the Thursday. And we were just casually chatting away with a few American press members in the, in the big press room. And Barrera walked through. And I was like, mm-hmm. are, you, are you for real? Is this really, is, is this what we're doing for a living right now? Marco Antonio Barrera is just casually walking through the press room, chatting away to Mexican press and what have you. Yeah. Just absolutely yeah. legendary. There's an aura about people like that. When you've, for me anyway, growing up, watching those guys, those trilogies and what have you. And then when you stood in the same room as them, it's, it's just, they give off an energy which is just know- superhuman. Do, do you know what it is? And we haven't talked about this on the show for a few months. And, and it's something that we do try to put out to the listeners is that the the sport, but boxers get very close to the media in this sport. 
and the accessibility of these men and these women is extraordinary and very often like we felt with joe tonight you know i've got i've got a relationship with joe as friends mm. um the relationship you develop with a boxer because they're going through so much there's a familiar group of people around them in the monumental moments of their sporting career and i think i think there's a there's a there's a friendship a kinship that goes on after sports that maybe doesn't or after their careers are over that doesn't maybe happen as much in so many of the other sports we are very very fortunate indeed in this sport that there is a sisterhood and a brotherhood that 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 continues well after the career is done most certainly regarding the accessibility i think we can get yeah. cl we are closer to the 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 athletes in this sport than any other sport you know you can't yeah, do what that, you can't do uh, that in football i know but also for that reason you have to be fairly meticulous and perspicacious about how you handle these people over a long of course. Of time one of the questions that i always find interesting um uh from fans or you know that who maybe are on twitter or on asking questions on instagram is why haven't you asked that right now why haven't you done that why haven't you told them this we do need a long-term relationship with these fighters and yep. they've got a radar for if you're bull essing them they've got a radar because they are like that as human beings and you You've have got to, build to trust. be trust and genuineness with them yes and, yes, and you absolutely. have to do it you know you've learned that and i've known it for a long time that mm -hmm. you, you 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 if you if you are two-faced with fighters they know you're doing it it's as simple yeah. as that and that's why i know carl frotch will be on my case on monday morning <laughs> it'll be on to all of us there's no question about that mate um I've gone for a, I've gone for that. I've gone for uh, Morales Barrera one. So therefore, if you're into your boxing, make sure you go and have a little bit of a check out of this. But what Gareth's just about to tell you, even if you're not an MMA fan, definitely go and watch it. Give it to him, G. What have you got? Yeah, UFC 165. I was there. I was covering it for TV and the Telegraph. It was an extraordinary fight. John Jones versus Alex Gustafsson. By the way, it's already interesting seeing the distance. Seeing that Gustafson can close the distance in a way that we've never seen in a John Jones fight before. So far, they have kept it on the feet. Which is what Gustafson wants. He feels he can outstrike the champion. See the blood rolling down the right side of John Jones's face. Gustafson with the takedown. First time in the UFC. By Gustafson, that's incredible. And John Jones might have to take Gustafson out to retain his title. They are on their feet here inside Air Canada Center. Boom! Right to the forehead. And that stunned Gustafson. Gustafson just put his hands on his hips like he was exhausted. Another head kick. Gustafson might be in trouble, Mike. Both of these guys are pushed to their spin in this fight from Gustafson. What an incredible fight. That might be the greatest title fight in the history of the light heavyweight division. Now, people say that John Jones is getting real challenges at the moment. 
For me, this is the greatest challenge he yeah. ever had to his title. Uh, September the 21st, 2013, the Air Canada Centre in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. And I'll tell you the, long, the, the, the end game of the story before I tell you about the actual fight is both men went to hospital together. John Jones in a wheelchair and Alex Gustafson limping alongside him. Neither man was fit enough to come to the post-fight press conference. It was the UFC light heavyweight championship of the world. John Jones against Alexander Gustafson. Now Gustafson had absolute belief that he had the technique. He was a brilliant boxer, brilliant kickboxer, um, but no one knew about his ground game. And what he did was he stuffed John Jones' takedowns early in the fight and forced Jones into a stand-up war for five rounds. Three and a half rounds in, Gustafsson was about to take the throne of a guy who we know now is a brilliant, one of the greatest, if not the greatest, um, mixed martial artist of all time. But in the fourth round, in a moment of brilliance, which defines John Jones for me, um, where we were breathless during this fight. It was extraordinarily exciting in the arena. John Jones turned and he was he, he looked dead on his feet and threw a spinning back elbow that absolutely knocked Gustafsson out of his senses. And for the last round and a half, Jones won the round back, so it was two all. And then in the last round, Jones won with Gustafsson out on his feet, but still fighting back incredibly. It was an amazing night, an amazing fight. And I can remember it was all so special because BT had just launched its coverage of, yeah. of, of UFC. And I remember coming back and doing the first ever studio show on TV. And it was a big, all singing, all dancing production in that giant studio of theirs. And we had amazing things to talk about. But not only that, Henan Barrow beat Eddie Wineland for the bantamweight title. And all these names were on the card. Brendan Sharp, Matt Mitrione, Francis Carmont, Kostas Filippou, Khabib Nurmagomedov beat Pat Healy, Miles Jury, Wilson High, Stephen Thompson, Mitch Gagnon. It was a time when you knew every single fighter on a UFC card. It was an amazing night, and it was one which I will never forget. I think live... Because of the length of the fight, Adam, and because of the because of the tenacity, I'm using that word a lot tonight, of both men, it was just unforgettable. Um I thought I think it was the fight of the year. For me it was one of the fights of the decade, if yeah. not one of the greatest top ten fights of all time. Well, I've recently had discussions about this fight as to whether it is the greatest title fight of all time. Um, mm -hmm. Recently, we saw Joanna and Wai Lee going at it, didn't we, in the strawweight division when it was a sensational title clash uh, between the girls. But without any shadow of a doubt, this, it's in that debate, Jones versus Gustafsson. I think we've yeah, got but, a little... But, but when you're wearing four-ounce gloves and you've got 205-pound fighters oh, yeah, who are weighing 220 on the night, literally heavyweights in boxing, fighting each other, and they take everything that each other's got to give but keep going, it's just extraordinary. They took so many shots that would ordinarily knock someone out. I don't know how they were both standing at the end of five rounds, frankly. Action-packed as ever. Hopefully you enjoyed that. We are live on the radio on TalkSport every single Saturday night at 8 o'clock. 
uh, during the coronavirus pandemic. So you can come and join us live if you want, and therefore you can interact with the show. You can call in and tweet in and get your questions to some of the stars that we speak to. Failing that, subscribe to the podcast. Do it via iTunes. Do it via the website, talksport.com, if you need an Android feed, because we're here every single Monday morning with all the guests that we speak to over the weekend, bringing you closer to fight sports, even though there's no fights going on at the moment. We'll catch you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.